Well, our family has started over the last few weeks to watch the Great British Baking Show in the evenings. So um, apparently some of you have seen this show. Maybe some of you are contemplating getting up and leaving at this point, but um, I'm a sucker for all things British. So uh, it's, a, it's a show, if you've never seen it before, where they invite, at the beginning, they invite 12 or 15, I don't know how many exactly it is. You could probably tell me. I know that Caitlin could tell me. Um, but they invite 12 or 15 amateur bakers and they bring them to this tent, and there, each week of the show, there are three baking challenges. And they, uh, they're you know, competing against one another to, to be the next great British baker, right? Well, the middle challenge each week is called the technical challenge, all right? And so in this technical challenge, they literally give each baker a recipe, and they give them step-by-step instructions on how to perform this technical challenge, exactly what to do in order. Now, in my mind, I see that and I think, okay, you have instructions, you have a recipe in front of you. If you would just follow the recipe, everything would turn out perfectly. If you would just pay attention to the tiniest detail, then you would be able to produce what they want you to and it would be magnificent. But if you watch the show, you know that is not the case at all. And it's not because it's a wrong recipe. If you've ever tried to bake something, even with a recipe in front of you, it doesn't exactly work like that. There's a certain intuitive know-how that you have to have when it comes to baking. And it's not something that you can always just read on a page and then do it. It takes instruction, it takes someone telling you and showing you how to do it, but it also, it just takes practice. I mean, you have to know exactly how to mix the ingredients. You have to know whether to do it this hard or this hard. You have to know when to stop mixing them because apparently you can overmix ingredients. You have to know how long to let an item cool before you go to decorating it or else it messes up the decorations. I mean, there's a lot of little details that you just can't pick up from a recipe, from step-by-step instructions. It takes a certain skill, and it takes a certain know-how to understand how to do those things. Now, in a very real sense, I think you could say that that know-how, that intuitive, learned sense of how to do something is exactly what the Bible's talking about when it talks about wisdom. That's what wisdom is. And wisdom takes instruction, certainly, to understand and to to perform, but it also takes practice. It takes doing something over and over again to get it right. And wisdom is absolutely necessary for every believer. It's necessary for you and I to possess wisdom, to walk in wisdom, to be able to navigate this world we're in. And when you think about the Christian life, There's not going to be step-by-step instructions for every situation you're going to face. You're not going to have a recipe of what to do in this life circumstance or in this life situation. And so what you and I have to do is we have to cultivate practical know-how. 
We have to cultivate that intuitive sense of this is what I need to do in this circumstance. This is the biblical principle that applies here, and this is how it applies. And all of that has to conform to God's rule and reign over the world, to his sovereignty, to the way he has designed things. And so that walk in wisdom is going to be our fifth and final characteristic of our our lifestyle as believers that Paul explains in Ephesians 4 through 6. So open up to Ephesians 5. If you're not already there, you can see we're going to start in verse 15. This is part one of this section of Ephesians. But this section is going to stretch all the way from chapter 5 and verse 15 through chapter 6 and verse 9, and there will be several parts to this, but the whole section is Paul talking about wisdom. And he's saying, this is how you walk in wisdom. This is what it looks like to walk in wisdom. And of course, if you've not been with us, then let me just go back and explain in chapter four of Ephesians, beginning there and coming up to where we're at now, this verb, this command to walk has been used up till now four different times. And Paul is explaining to us what it looks like to live out your faith, to walk worthy of your calling. And there's all these different ways that you do that. You walk in unity. You walk in holiness. You walk in love. You walk in light. And here he says you walk in wisdom. You go through life with a practical, intuitive know-how that helps you to navigate the circumstances in front of you. And so this section is going to stretch from 15 all the way to 6-9, and he's going to explain to us what a walk of wisdom looks like. Now, next week, we're going to begin in verse 22, and he's going to give us very specific circumstances, and he's going to apply wisdom to marriage, to parenting, to employment. And he's going to say, this is what it looks like to walk in wisdom in your job or in your parenting or in your marriage. But this week, and first, he's going to lay out for us some basics of wisdom. These are sort of the overarching principles that will guide how we live in these specific circumstances. And that's in verses 15 through 21, and that's what we'll look at today. And so we're going to see there, give it to you here, three basics necessary to walk in wisdom. Three basics necessary to walk in. In wisdom, and the first one of these is to know what time of day you are walking. Now, before we get into this specifically, I want you to notice there are three of these, three basics, and each of them has a positive. Actually, it starts with a negative. It has a negative and a positive, all right? So look at verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, right? So negative, positive. Look at verse 17. Don't be foolish. There's the negative, but... Here's the positive. Understand what the will of the Lord is. And then verse 18, don't get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. And then here's the positive, but be filled with the Spirit. And so in each one of these, there's a negative and there's a positive. He pairs a positive exhortation with a negative prohibition. And what he's trying to do is to help us to grasp the positive more clearly. And so in verse 15, here's our our big command, right? To walk, not as unwise, but walk in wisdom. But notice, this walk of wisdom is to be done in a particular manner. Look at the beginning of verse verse 15. Look carefully. The idea in that is to 
to pay meticulous attention to detail, to be very intentional and very purposeful and very precise in how you walk. And this is actually the same word, shockingly enough, this is the same word that is used of the Pharisees. And the Pharisees certainly gave meticulous attention to detail. Now, we don't want to be like the Pharisees in adding all of these commands to Scripture and in operating the way that they did. But Paul says here, to walk in wisdom, you need to walk intentionally and you need to be purposeful about your walk. Now, I know you're familiar with the concept of wisdom in the Bible, if you've read the Bible much at all. The Bible has a lot to say about wisdom, and there are entire Old Testament books that are called wisdom books. And the idea is that they teach us how to have this intuitive know-how in life and how to navigate life. But I would say, even beyond those Old Testament wisdom books, really the whole tone of Scripture is to teach us how to walk in wisdom, how to navigate life using biblical principles, how to do it in a, in a wise way. Now, wisdom means knowing which principles apply and then acting on those principles in a particular circumstance. Sometimes you don't have clear guidance. You don't have a recipe in front of you. But wisdom means I know what to do. I know how to apply this biblical principle here. It's skillful practice in living. So I think you could boil wisdom down to answering this question. What do I do? And that's how most of us think of it. But here, beyond what do I do, Paul wants us to add another element to wisdom that really helps us to, to get things in order and to walk carefully. And he does this in verse 16. This gives us a further picture of what it means to walk not unwise, but walk carefully in wisdom. Look at verse 16. Making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. So when you think about wisdom, you're not just asking the question, what do I do? But you're asking the question, what do I do next? What's my priority here? What's the most important thing I could do with my time? You see, wisdom isn't just knowing what to do, it's knowing when to do it. There's an urgency and an orderliness to wisdom. Wisdom means you have the ability to prioritize and know, okay, these are good options in front of me, but this is the most important thing that I need to do, and I need to do it next in my life. He says here that you want to make the best use of your time. And that has the idea of buying back your time. Think of it this way. If you were to go into an antique shop, I don't know if any of you do that sort of thing, but if you were to go into an antique shop and you were to discover a book or a box that has baseball cards in it from the 1960s, and that box was on sale for $100, which seemed kind of steep, but you started to look through that box and you realized that there were some incredibly valuable cards in that box. And if you were to take this box and you were to sell these cards individually, you would make thousands and thousands of dollars on these cards. Clearly, the shop owner doesn't know the true value of the cards in the box or in the book, but you do because you're familiar with baseball cards. 
And so what do you do? You buy up the contents of the box. You pay the $100. You redeem those cards, in a sense. And then you probably take them and you sell them. But the point is you make the best use of your money by buying those cards at a cheaper price and then you sell them and get 10 or 20 or 30 times as much. That's the idea here. You make the best use of your time. You make the best use of your money. So how do we do that? How do we make the best use of our time? Well, we begin by asking ourselves, how can I structure the time that I've been given to get the most out of my life and to bring God glory and honor? I mean, if you think about it, time is the most precious commodity that we have in a lot of ways. It's incredibly valuable. You can't get it back. And you have a limited amount of it. And so Paul says, I want you to know and to understand how to make the best use of your time. I want you to know how to buy it up and how to invest your time wisely. And you need to know how to do that because of when you're living. Look at the end of verse 16. Make the best use of the time because the days are evil. You and I are living in the last days. That's the way the Bible describes the time beyond Christ's ascension to the Father. You and I are living in the last days, and these days are evil. Satan has a temporary hold on this world. And chapter 2 of Ephesians has told us that he's dominating the world right now. He is working feverishly to accomplish his purposes in people's lives. And so you and I have to recognize what time we are walking in, and we have to act and respond accordingly. And so think about this if you were walking along an ancient path, maybe from Galilee to Jerusalem, the time of Jesus, you would need to know what time of day it was. I mean, you would need to know, is night approaching? Is night coming up? Is it morning? Do I have the full day in front of me? You would have to know what time it was while you were walking. And you would have to know because it would shape how fast you walked. It would shape the care and concern with which you moved forward. Do you need to get to shelter for the night because the bandits are gonna come out and attack you? Wisdom requires knowing what time of day it is and walking accordingly and prioritizing what you do next. That leads directly to the next basic of a wise walk. You have to know what path you're walking on. You have to know what time of day it is but you also have to know what path you are walking on. Now, if you're familiar with wisdom literature in the Old Testament, if you're familiar at all with the book of Proverbs, then you know that one of the major characters in the book of Proverbs is the foolish man. We've required one of our children to go through Proverbs and highlight where it uses the word foolish and where it uses the word wise to try to get a grip on the difference between the foolish man and the wise man. And that's a major contrast in the book of Proverbs and in, in all wisdom literature. But the foolish man in Proverbs is careless. He lacks sound judgment. He doesn't make the best use of his time. He doesn't know what time of day it is. He squanders opportunities in front of him away. He doesn't utilize what he's been given. 
And so in verse 17, Paul gives us an exhortation to reject a haphazard way of living. Don't be careless. But instead, seek to understand what the will of the Lord is. Look at verse 17. Therefore, do not be foolish. Don't be careless. Don't be haphazard in your walk. But understand what the will of the Lord is. Understanding the will of the Lord leads to a walk of wisdom. So, this is the big question. What does Paul mean by the will of the Lord? What's he talking about here? Well, he's already told us in the book of Ephesians. So flip back to chapter 1. He's going to define this for us. Chapter 1 and verse 7. I'll read all the way through verse 10. In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. Well, what is, what is his will? What's the mystery of his will? According to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, and here it is, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So God's will has been made clear to us and it has been made known to us. And God's will is his plan for all things. It's the big picture of what God is doing through our salvation, through our redemption, and then through everything in creation. He's moving all of it towards an endpoint and towards a purpose. And that purpose is that everything will be brought under the lordship of Jesus Christ. You can think of God's will as the overall story of the Bible. It's the redemption that God is accomplishing through Christ, and that redemption is leading to the point where God, the Lord Jesus Christ, will rule and reign over all of humanity in a new heaven and a new earth. That is God's will. But notice in verse 17 what Paul says leads to wisdom. Don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. To walk in wisdom, we have to understand the will of the Lord. Now, it's easy to sort of articulate the facts of what God's will is, which I just did. You could write those down, and then you would know the facts. You would know that it's about salvation history. It's about God's plans to unite all things under Christ. It's about the big picture of redemption and God's working in human history. And you could jot those facts down, and you would know them. But that's different than understanding the will of the Lord. It's a different thing. Walking in wisdom means understanding how those facts change me and change my life today. So keep in mind that chapters 4 through 6 in Ephesians are ethical exhortations. They're telling us how to live based on chapters 1 to 3. And so what Paul's saying is here, here is based on the big picture of God's will, you need to understand that so that you live in a certain way. That big picture plan has an impact on your daily life. It really does change your marriage. It really does change how you parent your kids. When you understand, you start to appropriate God's plan for the world to your daily life. It changes the way you think of your kids, the way you parent them. It changes your evangelism. 
It changes your relationships with people in the church and at work. It changes your financial habits. That big picture changes everything. The list goes on and on for how God's will shapes daily life. And here's the point. You have to know what path you're on. Knowing God's will is knowing what path you're walking on. It's knowing where you're going. It's knowing the destination at the end of the path. It's knowing where you're heading from. Where have you come from on this path and where are you going? And you may not know all the details, right? This is your first time on this path. It's my first time too. So I don't know what's coming up. I don't know the hills. I don't know the curves. I don't know the potholes. But I do know the end destination. And I need to think about that end destination and the overall picture of where I'm headed and where I've come from. And that will start to shape my daily life. And that will help me to walk in wisdom. And so you have to know what time you're walking on the path. You have to know what's next to walk in wisdom. And you have to know what path you're on and where you're headed. But it's always important when you're walking to have the right company as well. This is the third one. Have the right guide for the walk. And this is in verses 18 to 21. So one of the things that I really want to do at some point in my life, although I don't know if or when this will ever happen, is I I want to go back to Nepal. I've been there several times on teaching trips, teaching pastors and church people over there, believers. And one of my friends over there has offered to, if I'll come a week early before we start to teach, he has offered to take me on a trek through the Himalayas. Now, not climbing Everest, because I can't do that. I would die instantly. (laughs) But (laughs) he's offered to take me on a trek through the Himalayas, where you can see the mountains and go on a several days long hike. I mean, you can understand why I would want to do that. Now, that is a, a hike, that's a walk that I would never attempt on my own. I wouldn't even try it. If I was going to do that, I would want my friend, his name's Anand, I would want him with me the entire time. I would want him to be my guide because he knows what he's doing. He's been on those sort of treks before. He knows what path we're on. He knows where we're headed. He knows how to best manage our resources on that trip. And so probably the best part, the most important part of that experience would be the company that I keep while I'm on the walk. And that's exactly what Paul says here in verse, verses 18 through 21. Look at verse 18. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but here's the positive side of this command, but be filled with the Spirit. So Paul makes it quite clear here that if you're going to walk carefully, if you're going to give attention to your life and walk in wisdom, then you can't walk while you're controlled by intoxicating substances. He specifically here is addressing alcohol, and he's addressing drinking alcohol to the point where you've lost control. And it's dominating you. I mean, the Bible makes it quite clear that drunkenness is not fitting for a believer. Why? Because you lose control of yourself. You're not in charge anymore. And when you're not in charge, you can't make the best use of your time. You don't know what's coming up next. You don't know how to prioritize because you're under the control of a foreign substance. 
And here, Paul calls being drunk debauchery. That's not a word we use a whole lot. But the idea here is that a debauched person is one who shows a lack of concern or a lack of thought. He wastes his life. He's been given something good, and he squanders it away. It's the exact opposite of paying careful attention. And so instead of giving ourselves to alcohol to the point of drunkenness and intoxication where we lose control of our faculties, the positive side of this, the companion that we need for our journey, is the Spirit. It's probably better to read what he says in verse 18 as, be filled by the Spirit. I think that's the best way to understand this phrase here. So the idea is that the Spirit does the work of filling us. We're filled up by the Spirit. So with what does the Spirit fill us? We'll flip back to chapter 3 and verse 19. This prayer that Paul prays for the believers, he wants them to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled Same language, with all the fullness of God. So Paul's praying here, and his desire is that we would be filled up with the fullness of God, that we would reflect the character of God in each area of our lives. That's what he wants. That's what he wants us to be filled with. If you flip over to chapter 4, he expands on this a little bit more. Chapter 4 and verse 13. He's talking specifically about ministry and the body here. And here's the goal, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The primary goal of ministry within the church body is that each one of us would grow up to look like Jesus Christ, that we would reflect his character. It means that by the work of the Spirit that you and I would put on attitudes, emotions, actions that resemble Jesus. This same language is used elsewhere in the New Testament. Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with what? With all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. The Spirit fills us to look like Christ, and he fills us with particular virtues and particular qualities. Here, those qualities are hope and joy and peace. This is the type of travel companion that you want on your walk. I mean, this is the the guy you want with you. And so the Spirit's work in us is to cultivate these qualities And his work is sort of behind the scenes in a lot of ways, right? So if his work is behind the scenes, how do you and I know when the Spirit is at work in in us? I mean, certainly we we cultivate these qualities. We're filled with joy and with peace and with hope. But Paul's going to give us three things in verses 19 through 21 that clearly demonstrate to us that the Spirit is at work in us. These are signs of the manifestation of the Spirit in our lives. I'm going to read the whole passage, 19 to 21, and then we'll go back and walk through it. Addressing, here's what it looks like. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another 
out of reverence for Christ. Three manifestations of the Spirit. Three ways you know that the Spirit is your travel companion. First of all, singing. Singing for the benefit of those around you. And that's exactly what he says in verse 19. Addressing, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Out of a heart that is filled with praise to God. Now it it may surprise you that when you sing on Sunday mornings, you're not only singing to God. You are, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but there is a horizontal aspect to our singing. We're singing to instruct and address one another. We're singing to teach one another, as Colossians says, and to help one another. And so it makes all the difference in the world what we sing, when we sing. The words that we sing, the doctrine, the truth that we teach one another. We are addressing one another in our songs. And being filled with the Spirit means that you do this intentionally and actively and in a way that benefits everyone else. So he mentions three different categories here, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Now these categories are a little bit vague. What exactly is Paul talking about? So if you're looking for these categories to give you specific styles of music that are allowable in the church, or if you're looking for these categories to mean we can only sing hymns written before 1750, or we can only sing songs written after 2010, praise songs, if you're looking for these categories to do that sort of work in the church, they don't do that. (laughs) They're not going to do that for you. That's not what Paul's addressing here. But what he is saying and what he does expect is that when we sing, that we will instruct one another that our singing will be filled with the teaching of God's word and that we'll instruct one another. And he expects that we'll praise God, that we'll sing songs that are directed to God and offered in praise to him for who he is. And he expects that our singing will be biblical. It'll be grounded in the truths of scripture. And I think he expects that there will be a healthy variety to our singing. God has given us so many gifts in music and varieties of instrumentation and styles and talents. And I think one of the things Paul's indicating here is that we utilize all the gifts that God has given to us to sing in this manner and sing to one another. But keep in mind that as you're singing, the end of verse 19, you're singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. One of the indications that the Spirit is your guide is that you're singing out of a heart that is filled up with praise to God. And this is where primarily your singing is directed. There is clearly and obviously a vertical aspect to our singing. We're singing vertically to our Lord as we're filled with the Spirit, and we're singing out of hearts that are full of praise to Him. And so our singing on Sunday morning, if we had to boil it down to two things, we would say we want to sing out of hearts that are filled with love for God and to him. And as we're doing that, we want to sing in a way that benefits those around us, corporately together. And so the time when we're singing together is not just getting ready to hear the word preached. It does prepare our hearts, but it is of primary importance 
And it is a manifestation of the Spirit in us as we sing to God and to one another. Now there's another manifestation of the Spirit here, and it's given in verse 20. Being filled with the Spirit, when the Spirit is your guide in life, look at verse 20, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That language is really broad, isn't it? It's almost scary broad. Giving thanks always, that's a lot of the time. And giving thanks for everything, that's like everything that happens in your life. The language is broad here, and gratitude of this type can only happen in my life through the work of the Spirit. I'm able because I know what path I'm on, and I know what time of day it is, and I'm making the best use of my time. And so because of that, I'm able to look at my circumstances, and I'm able to rejoice in what God brings my way. And I'm able to offer gratitude to him in everything and at all times. Because I have the Spirit as my traveling guide. And finally, in verse 21, another manifestation of the Spirit is that we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, I think what Paul is saying here is that we submit to each other as the God-ordained roles for our lives come into play, right? So I don't think what he's saying is that everyone submits to everyone else all the time and there's total chaos in the church. I think what he's saying is there are particular instances where we submit to others, and he gives examples of those in marriage, in parenting, and in our workplace. And one of the manifestations of the Spirit is that we submit to those God-ordained roles in our lives. That sort of submission and obedience is not possible without the Spirit working inside of us. So, here are the basics of wisdom, right? And this is what it looks like. Know what time of day you're walking. Know, as you apply the principles of God's word, what's coming up next, what your priorities are. Know what path you're walking on. You've got to know the destination that you're headed toward. You've got to know God's will and the big picture of what he's accomplishing in your life and in the world. And then you have to have the right guide for the journey. And that guide is the Holy Spirit who works in us to cultivate attitudes and responses that resemble the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what it looks like to walk in wisdom. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we don't have to walk in ignorant foolishness any longer that we have the light of your word and that we can walk accordingly and we can walk in wisdom. We're so grateful for the Lord Jesus. We're, we're thankful that he has saved us. We're thankful that, Holy Spirit, that you live in us and that you fill us with Christ and you direct us and guide us and you give us joy and peace and hope on this path that we're walking along. And all of this is possible because of the blood of Jesus Christ shed for us. And so thank you. It's in his name we pray. Amen.